I've uh, entitled this study uh, 3D Christianity um, because I was thinking, you know, 3D technology, it's everywhere now, huh? I mean, it's in movies, it's in our TVs, it's in our phones, it's in computers, it's in video games, it's in printers, it's in graphics, it's, it's everywhere you look, this technology, um, you can't escape it. And of course, we all know what 3D uh, technology is, right? 3D is that which is three-dimensional. It's when we go to the movies and we put on those funky glasses, right, and minding our own business, eating popcorn, and all of a sudden we duck, popcorn goes flying because of that thing coming at us. That's 3D uh, technology. Um, I like 3D movies. I, I don't know about you guys. I, I like going. My wife, she doesn't. She gets a headache, so guess who wins? She does. We don't watch 3D movies. Um, but I, I think it's cool, you know, uh, uh, because it, it adds to the experience. It, it immerses you into the movie. You feel like you're a part of the movie when you're watching a 3D movie. Um, so today I want to talk about uh, 3D Christianity, not about the, the technology, but about the three D's of Christianity. And that's the word die, that's the word dwell, and that's the word do. Are we willing to die? Are we willing to dwell? And are we willing to do? I have a question for you. Do you want to be immersed in your walk as a Christian? Do you want to... Um, be a part of your Christianity, not that we could be a part of our salvation. And I want to prerequisite what I'm about to say by saying that this study is for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever in the room, just kind of chill. And, and I hopefully by the end of this study, you will become. God will touch your heart and you will give your heart to the Lord. But this study is for believers because what we're going to talk about today can only be done by believers. It's hard. It's difficult for us as believers to do it. Why? Because I'm fighting that old Henry 24-7. I have the devil to contend with, and I have a world that he uses to mess with me. But it's possible because I have the Holy Spirit. I have God inside of me. And if you're a Christian, it is possible for you as well. If you're not, then it's impossible. You can't do this. Okay, so I want to make sure that we get that right off the bat. But do you want to be immersed in your Christian walk if you're a Christian? Do you want to be a, a part of it, or do you just want to be a spectator? That's the question that I would I, I like for you to ask yourself, because it's, it's a choice, isn't it? It's, it's your choice. God is a perfect gentleman. He is not going to make us do anything that we do not want to do. He's done it all for us already. So we can kind of just skate by, skate by and just say, you know what, I'm saved. I'm good. You know, my family knows the Lord. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to just continue down the same route. I'm going to be a spectator. But I, I, I want to talk to those that want to be immersed. I want to talk to those that don't just want to stick their toe in the water, but want to dive into the water. If you want God to work in and through your life, if you want God to be pleased with your life, if you want God to one day say what it, what it says in Matthew 25, 23, where it says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If that's you, then today this is for you. We have to make sure that if that is us, if we want to be immersed into uh, this walk, this Christian walk, that we stand on these three Ds of Christianity, the die, the dwell, and the do. 
And so to help us kind of explain that a little bit more, I want to introduce you to a family. More than likely, you're familiar with this family. I'm going to give you three hints. They're from Bethany. They're known as the friends of Jesus, and they're siblings. Anybody want to take a, a guess? We're going to talk about Lazarus. We're going to talk about Martha, and we're going to talk about Mary. I was thinking as I was studying, you know, every family has personalities in them, don't they? Um, most of us have a, a, an uncle that knows it all, right? We call him Uncle Google, right, because he knows everything, right? <laughs> Some of us have a, a crazy aunt, Gracie, because she's a little cuckoo in the brain, right? Uh, you know what? My sister Yaya is not here, right? Okay, good. Uh, I've never asked our sister Yaya. There's a sister named Yaya that comes to this church why she has that nickname, because that's not her real name. But we had a cousin who we nicknamed Yaya because she would talk and talk and talk and talk, and we would have to say, Yah, Yah. <laughs> those of you that don't know Spanish, you're like, what is he saying? But those of you that do, you know what I'm talking about. The point is that every family has some weird relatives, huh? Who knows? You might be that weird relative with the nickname in your family. We don't know. Every family has a, a hodgepodge of personalities. That's just the way it is, you know? I got some weird relatives. If you ask my relatives, they would tell you I'm off my rocker uh, with what I've done with my life. I've given my life over to Jesus. I, ser I try to serve him. They would say I'm crazy. Um, but the point is that we're able to learn from our families, the do's and the don'ts, huh? Uh, today I want us to look closer at this family, Lazarus, um, uh, Mary and Martha, in order to be able to learn the traits that we should all have as Christians. Uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha of Bethany were friends of Jesus. We find that. Why don't you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 11, because we're going to spend some time there. John chapter 11. But I want to uh, highlight uh, verse 5 in the sense that the Bible tells us that, that these, these people, these, these siblings, were very close to Jesus' heart. It says in John eleven five. I'll read it as you're turning there. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. He loved them. So cool, huh, to serve a personal God. Because God, if he wanted to, could just be up there in heaven and just be like, you know. But he loves us. He's personal. He knows us. We're going to see how intimate he is, even in our pain. But concerning Jesus' friendship with this family, A.J. Morris once said, the incarnate one. The master and model of man was a friend. Thank God for that. Thank God that he is a friend. If you want to be a friend of Jesus, do you know what you need to do? You need to declare yourself a sinner. That's it. Declare yourself a sinner. Luke 15, 2 says, The Pharisees and scribes complain, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Matthew eleven nineteen 19 tells us, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. Thank God that Jesus is a friend of sinners. You have Jesus as your friend. This, this family was a friend of Jesus because Jesus was a friend to them. So let's, let's start by looking at one of the, the three Ds of this family, and that's the word die. Die. Shown through us through the person of Lazarus. Let's look at verse 3 in John chapter 11. We'll read it. It says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now we are all familiar with this story, right? Jesus was about 20 miles from Bethany when a messenger came by with the news that our, our, our Lord's dear friend was sick. If Jesus would have responded that day, he would have been there within one day. 
and more than likely made it back to Bethany while Lazarus was alive. But it's interesting what he did, huh? Look at verse, verses 4 through 7. It says, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he ran to them. No, what does it say? He says, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That's kind of weird, huh? And after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Odd. It's odd, you know, and we're all familiar with the saying with friends like that, who needs enemies, huh? Right? But, but, but we know that it, that, that it wasn't that Jesus was cold or that he didn't care. Like, like we read there, he told his disciples, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Notice that the Son of God, he's talking about himself, may be glorified through it. Jesus, being God, knew what was going to happen. The delay had a purpose. What was that purpose? Well, we all know the story, right? It was so Jesus could raise him from the dead, so he can call him out of that cave, so that people would believe who Jesus was. All of his miracles he did was so that you would believe in who he was, so that we would be saved through what he did. But in a way, the delay had another more obvious reason. What is that? That Lazarus would die. That Lazarus would die. Because in order for God to be glorified, in order for God to raise Lazarus from the dead, he would have to be dead. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to know that, right? Now, prior to this, the, the Jews had tried to kill Jesus. If you're familiar with the story, you, you, you remember when, when the disciples says, are, are we really going to go back? Like, we're going to go back to the place where they want to kill you? And that's what it says in verse 8 through 15. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the, the Jews sought to stone you, and, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, if we have Jesus, there is nothing to fear. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, taking a nap. But I go that I may wake him up. And so, of course, like you and I, right? The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he's going to get well. He's just napping. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Verse 14 and 15 says, And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. It's funny because the disciples remind me so much of me. Because God has to speak to me plainly <laughs> to tell me what it is he wants to tell me. I'm a little slow. All this talk about Sleep, he's resting, he's not resting, was, was confusing to the disciples. So for the sake of time, skip down with me to verse 33. And by this time, Jesus has, had arrived in Bethany four days later, right? And he had an encounter with both Martha and, and Mary. But since we're going to talk about them a little bit more later, I just want to continue with Lazarus. Verse 33 and 34 says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, that was Mary, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Again, how awesome it is that Jesus displayed 
emotions like we do. This is a verse that as pastors, when we officiate a funeral, we point to because we're encouraging the families to grieve, that there is healing in the grieving process. And we do so because we saw Jesus grieve. We saw Jesus feel the emotions of death. Verse 35 and 36 says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how, how he loved him. Again, in Jesus displaying his heart, we have the shortest verse, verse 35 in the Bible. Just two words, Jesus wept. The emotions Jesus displayed caused all those who were there to declare he must have loved this guy a whole bunch. Verse 37, and some of them said, could not have this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Of course he could have, but that was a purpose and a plan. Verse 38, 39, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the practical one, the sister of him who was dead said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he has been dead four days. The purpose was that Lazarus would die. Skip down to verses uh, 40 through 44 to read Jesus' reply. Verse 40 says, Jesus said to her, Did I not say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone. We all know the story from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eye and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of these people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Now this course is an incredible, incredible miracle, right? We, we know that God was glorified because of this miracle, for it proved that Jesus had power over death. He had power over death. The fact that he was able to, to take a, a decomposed body, and believe me, Lazarus was more than just thinking. He was decomposed, right? Four days in the grave, he was a mess. But he had the ability to take a decomposed body, and within the seconds that it took him to say, Lazarus, come forth, he made the man new again. It's mind-boggling that it happened. But before that happened, Lazarus had to have died. You see my point? That's the first personality trait that we have to learn from this family. That's the first D in our 3D experience of Christianity, to die. It's one of the, the traits that we, that we as Christians have to have, that we're dead. I read about this man, uh, um, Carlos Camejo. He was declared dead after a highway accident in 2007. Before his wife could arrive to identify the body, the medical examiners began an autopsy. Kameh, who had been declared uh, dead, woke up in the morgue in excruciating pain after the medical examiners began the autopsy. They cut into his face and were surprised as fresh blood poured out. They quickly started sewing the incision and Kameho regained consciousness. I woke up because the pain was unbearable, Kameho told the local newspaper. When his wife arrived to identify him, she found Kameho waiting for her in the corridor. Now, this is a miracle, and it's an amazing story, and I'm sure the Kameho family were thrilled, especially the wife, huh, to find Mr. Kameho there waiting in the corridor as opposed to lying down there. 
But I want to make this point because this happens to us a lot of times as Christians. We declare ourselves dead and alive to Christ. But then like this man, when the pain hits, it's too unbearable to deal with. We wake up. We say this is too much. It hurts too much. And we got to remain dead and alive in him. There's a quote by John Wesley. who It's been modified over the years, but it says something like this. When someone is on fire, people will come from far away to see them burn. And I contend that if someone is to be on fire, they have to be dead. They have to die to self. When someone finds out that you've died to self and you've been reborn in Christ, people will come a long way to take notice. Lazarus serves as a good example of this. Watch, go with me a little further to John chapter 12. Look what it says in verse 1. John 12, 1, then six days before the Passover where Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There's no, there's no doubt, right, that this is after Jesus had, had, had uh, caused Lazarus uh, to come back from the dead. Now jump down to verse 9. Verses 9 through 11 in John 12. It says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he, with the capital H, was there. So they knew that Jesus was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but they might, that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. It goes on to say, But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death, also because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. It's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed or if you've ever noticed, but up to this point, Lazarus hasn't said one word. And I invite you to go to the Bible and see if he says anything. There is not one single word recorded that Lazarus has said in the Bible, yet people were becoming Christians because of his life, because of his death. As Christians, we need to be, we need to be sure that our old self is dead. When people find out that we've died and that we, we've been reborn again in Christ and then we continue to do the same thing. If I continue to do the same thing that old Henry used to do, what does that say? What kind of message are we sending? And I know that we're all good with that Christian lingo. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm covered, brother, in the blood of Christ. But it's that blood that changes, that transforms us to become different people, not sinless, but we definitely should sin less. And we should have a different attitude towards sin. We shouldn't think of it as it's no big deal. It should hurt us more than it hurts anyone else. We have to die. We have to die. Die to self. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to die to self. In the context of Paul writing Galatians 2.20, he was declaring that he was dead to his old philosophy of appeasing God through religion. He was dead to the law. It was no longer going to be him trying to appease God. It was going to be what Christ had done for him. He was dying to those things that he knew. We need to die to our philosophies. Blah, blah, blah. Philosophies. <laughs> we need to die to the way of doing things. 
We need to die to our ideas and, and, and turn to God's way because it's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. We also need to die to the world. We can't allow the world's mentality into the church. I wasn't sure if I should say this because there's a lot of sensitivity and, 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 and so many emotions right now. But, you know, this thing that happened in Florida, the people that got shot, my heart goes out to, to the family members. Um, we're praying. I'm praying. I, I, I grieved, you know, when I heard that. Um, I, I believe that, that, that those who, in the name of religion, would kill, or even those in the name of religion who would go to a funeral of a, of a, of a, of a person in the armed forces and say mean things, is not a Christian. But also, at the same time, I noticed that Christian people are now throwing up the rainbow banner on their Facebook page. What's that all about? We can be compassionate. We could love the world. We can pray for the world. But we should never compromise. We should never stand on what they stand. We should stand on the grace and the love of Jesus Christ and his transforming power over our lives. I don't get that. We need to die to the world. James 4.4 4 tells us, Adulterers and adulteresses do not know, don't you know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can't allow the, the world to have any part of us. Like Manny likes to remind us, right? Uh, we got we to gotta have the boat in the water. But we can't have the water in the boat. We got to die to sin. Paul the Apostle is describing the, the, the doctrine of grace in, in Romans and through an imaginary argument that he, he poses, uh, he, he, he pretends that someone asks him, if God's grace is so good, then wouldn't it be good to continue in sin so that God's grace can continue to flourish and flourish? And Paul's reply is found in Romans 6, 2 through 4, when he says, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Don't you know that you're dead? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. If we're Christians, it's no longer we who live. We've died. It's Christ who lives through us. We all know this, huh? This isn't like this grand theology. This is elementary Christianity. We should know this, but it bears repeating because it is so difficult to die. But don't say it's impossible. Because if you're a Christian, you have the Lord inside of you. And all things are possible through him. We have to seek to die like Lazarus. As we read, Jesus called Lazarus out of that tomb. And he told the people around him, loose him and let him go. Go where? Go free. Free to what? Free to live my life the way I want to live it? No. Free to serve the Lord. Free to know the Lord. Free to dwell. And that's the, the next uh, uh, D of the 3D uh, experience, the 3D Christianity that we're going to talk about. And for that, we talk about Mary of Bethany. She was a dweller, huh? If you guys have ever done a character study, if you guys have ever uh, studied Mary of Bethany, she is one of the most beautiful characters in all of Scripture, and we can learn a lot from her. 
because she was, she was a dweller. Every time we see Mary of Bethany in the Bible, do you know what she's doing? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's worshiping him. She's adoring him. She's a dweller. We see Mary three times in the Bible, Luke 10, John 11, John 12. But since we're already here in John, let's, let's look at, at Mary. Look at John chapter 12, read verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me. It says, And six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Take note of that. Remember that, all right? She was an usher. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But, on the, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. In verse 7 we see Jesus' reply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you did not always have. Mary was always dwelling at the feet of Jesus. Are we? If we do, we have to be dead. Because later on I'm going to talk about following recipes and following ingredients. And, and, and you can't have one without having something else. You have to die in order to be a dweller. But if you are dead, then I, I just I, I can't even fathom you not dwelling. I can't fathom us not worshiping. Us not having a relationship with God. Not us adoring. I can't fathom us not coming to church and say, oh, man. Or coming late to church because we're like, okay, I got about a 15-minute buffer before the sermon starts. I don't have to go and worship. I can't, I can't fathom. Worship is a gift that we've been given. Worship should be for us as Christians like breathing. It should just flow out of us, huh? As born-again Christians, we need to be dwellers. Not, not city dwellers, not country dwellers, but indwellers. Dwellers in Christ. How do you dwell with God, though? That's the question. It's practical. You dwell with God in the Word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Uh, we're going to talk about fellowship in a little while, but that even speaks of fellowship, sharing the word with each other. But we dwell with God by allowing God's word to dwell in us. We dwell with God in prayer. I love Psalm 27.4. The psalmist wrote this about prayer. He says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his one translation, um, the NASB, uses meditate for the word inquire. Another translation, the NET, uses the word contemplate for the word inquire, which are both two words that describe prayer, seeking. That's how we dwell with God. We dwell with God in fellowship. Huh? We fellowship with him, of course, through the word. We fellowship with him through prayer. But we fellowship with God as we fellowship with each other. Acts 2, verse 44 says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
First John 1 John 1.7 tells us, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another as the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. I can't understand those people who, as Christians, would rather hang around with unbelievers than with fellow Christians. Now, I know the importance of having unbeliever friends. How else are we going to reach them? How else? You know what? We're the same as them, except we've been saved by the grace of God. But as friends who love them, what do we want most for them? We want them to know Jesus, huh? So that's the primary reason why we're hanging out with them. But our yearning should be to hang around with who? With other people who are like-minded. Our, our yearning should be to be hanging around the people of God. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. You guys see the day approaching? All you got to do is open up your eyes. So we looked at the two Ds of Christianity. But what's the big deal about two Ds, right? It's just two-dimensional, man. If you got three D, you want to go all in, right? And so we have to seek to die like Lazarus. We, we, we have to want to dwell like Mary. And now look at the last member of the family. Who's that? Who's left? Martha, huh? Martha, Martha, Martha. She represents the do. The doer. Did you know that the word do is found 2,500 times in the Bible? 2,500 times the word do. The command to do is said. And, you know, speaking of Martha, it's kind of sad because when we think of Martha, at least me, I kind of look at her in a negative way just because the teachings have always been done in a negative way. Um, Martha is typecast, huh? I mean, we know her as the, the complainer. Watch, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. We'll look closer at Martha. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. It says in Luke chapter 10, uh, 38, Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha, named Martha, welcomed him into her house. She was hospitable. She served in the usher's ministry. She welcomed people in. And as she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet. Note that, okay? Who also sat at Jesus' feet. Who's the other person who sat at Jesus' feet? Well, this is a guess, but I'm thinking it's talking about Martha because he just talked about Martha, huh? She also sat at Jesus' feet. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. In verse 41, and Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Remember I told you Mary is always dwelling? But just because Mary is always dwelling and Martha is serving and Martha has a difficulty here that God called her out on, please don't understand that Jesus isn't saying Martha was wrong for serving. No. He was only pointing to the fact that she was wrong for calling her sister out like that. I, I've seen this in this church, believe it or not. 
You have people who are servants of servants. Man, we are so blessed in this church to have people that they are there no matter what. Man, you don't even have to call them. They're going to show up. They're going to be there. You don't have to ask them. They're already, they're already serving. But I've, I've, I've noticed situations whereas these people who are servants of servants grew weary that they looked at the people standing around and not serving and complained. You can't fault them for that. It's natural. It's not right. But, but it happens. You're tired. You lose focus. You forget why you're doing what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you know, you're pulling tables out and you're vacuuming and, and you see, you know, Henry right there in the corner, you know, just chilling, chit-chatting, right? But, but you don't know really if what I'm doing is fellowshipping or I'm praying or someone else. I'm just using my name as an example. Martha was a doer. That's my point. What would we do without the doers in the church? Ask yourself that question. You'd come in today to church and you say, um, we're sorry, uh, there's not going to be a teaching today. The pastor, he's serving in the nursery. Your kids can stay, you got to go home. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what would happen. I mean, God, praise God, you know, for the people that serve here. Pastor Manny would not be able to do the things that he does without the servants that serve here. We're blessed in this church, but I wonder what would happen if we all did our part. The Bible tells us that we've all been given a gift. Huh? You guys agree with that? Romans twelve six. We all have gifts. Some plural, some singular, but you all have gifts. What are we supposed to do with those gifts? We're supposed to use them for the edification, for the building up of the church. Romans twelve one says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service we aren't doing god any favors people by serving him we aren't doing god any favors by serving his body it's our reasonable service the word reasonable is the word logikos in the greek you know what word we get in the english language from that word logical obvious rational apparent I found one Almani dictionary that defined it as duh. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's no such thing. But it is duh, right? Psalm 116.12 says, says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I like the New Living Translation when it says, What can I offer the Lord for all he has done for me? Ask yourself that question. What can I give that will impress God that would compare with everything that he's done for me? The fact that you're living, the fact that you came here today, it should blow us away. Because that, that means that God allowed it to happen. That God gave us breath. And so if we, if we think, well, why should I serve? We're wrong. I think it was Greg Laurie. He might have you know, heard someone else say it, but I heard him say it, so I'm going to give him the credit who said the problem with living sacrifices is that they slither away from the sacrifice table. And it's true. We have to be steadfast. First Corinthians tells us that. Be immovable, steadfast, knowing that your work in the Lord is not done in vain. Don't let nothing move you. Stay there. 
A little later, Mark's going to teach for our uh, um, teachers and servants class on Nehemiah about serving in the face of opposition. You're welcome to come back if you want to. Two o'clock. My point is that we shouldn't come to church on the basis of what we can get, but on the basis of what we can give, on the basis of what we can do. Why should we serve? It's our reasonable service. John 13, 15, Jesus says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, does anybody know what John 13 is all about? It's about washing feet. Everybody here know what follows? John chapter 15, a couple chapters later, Jesus going to the cross and dying for us. So we should serve in humility, knowing that we're not worthy to serve, but we get to serve. We should serve in response, because that's what he taught us to do. That's what he showed us first to do. We should serve in obedience, because that's what he's called us to do. And we should serve in love. Because we have him inside of us. Because we're dead and no longer alive. It's not me who lives, but Christ Jesus who lives through me. I have to seek to die like Lazarus. And believe me, I'm saying this to myself. It's one thing that, that, that you need to know. That anytime anyone teaches, God is showing that person first. I, I need to seek to die like Lazarus. I, I haven't been completely dead yet. I'll be honest with you. I need to want to dwell like Mary. And I need to look to do like Martha. That's an immersed Christian. That is 3D Christianity. In closing, I'm going to throw you off a little bit because I'm going to talk about something that you're like, what are you talking about? And it's not like I'm trying to get people to give me sweets or treats. Or, but it's, I'm, I welcome that, by the way. But in this church, there are sisters who can bake, man. I mean, they get down. Betty Crocker, Martha Stewart, they got nothing on them, all right? I mean, it's, there's no reason to come to a fellowship or a potluck because of the food, but it's a type of, like, cooking and baking that makes you want to come because of the baking, because of the cooking. There's a sister in here who bakes the most delicious carrot cake. How many of you guys like carrot cake? Some bomb carrot cake, all right? Now, just, this is just, I'm just saying, she doesn't have to give me the recipe, but, but what if I was bold enough to ask her, Sister, would you hook me up with the recipe? And let's just imagine that she was kind enough, sweet enough, she's a Christian, and she would give it to me, right? And I would take it home, bring out all the ingredients, and all of a sudden I started saying, man, carrots, he, I know it's called carrot cake, but that's a vegetable, I'm going to just, sugar, oh yeah, give me sugar. It says three cups, and I'm putting six. A uh, uh, flower, nah. This, nah. What would happen if I tinkered with the recipe? I'm not asking you men, because you guys are all jacked up. You don't know how to bake. I'm asking the ladies, what would happen if I tinkered with the recipe, ladies? Tell your men. That, that, that carrot cake ain't coming out the same, huh? Let's not tinker with what God has given us. Let's be willing to die. I know it's hard, but we can. Let's desire to dwell, because that should be automatic if we're dead. And let's look to do, because we need doers in the church.
I want to end with a story that a brother sent me. A brother who's going through some things, but I think this story ministered to him. And hopefully it ministers to you because you might be here thinking, man, Henry, you know, I thought like when guest speakers came on, like they're supposed to be nice and stuff, you know, like Pastor Manny's gone and you're like, he can like whipping us, you know. Well, first, I'm not a guest speaker. I'm here all the time. So too bad. All right. (laughs) Second, I know it's hard. I told you guys that that this is a, a message that I preach to myself. And I know that sometimes we feel like we're doing things and we want to do things, but we feel like our feet are, are, are stuck in cement. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, I want to share this story um, with you. It's, it's called Pushing Against the Rock. It says, There once was a man who was asleep one night in his cabin when suddenly his room filled with light and the Savior appeared to him. The Lord told him that he had work for him to do and showed him a large rock, explaining that he was to push against the rock with all his might. This man did that, and for many days he toiled from sunup to sundown, his shoulders set squarely against the cold, massive surface of the rock, pushing with all his might. Each night the man returned to his cabin, sore and worn out, feeling like his whole day had been spent in vain. Seeing that the man showed signs of discouragement, Satan decided to enter the picture, placing thoughts in the man's mind, such as, why kill yourself over this? You're never going to move it. Or, boy, you've been at it a long time and you haven't even scratched the surface. Giving the man the impression that the task was impossible and the man was unworthy because he wasn't moving the massive stone. These thoughts, of course, discouraged and disheartened the man and he started to ease up on his efforts. Why kill myself? It's true, he thought. I'll just put in my time, put forth just the minimum effort, and that will be good enough and this he did or at least he planned on doing until one day he decided to take his troubles to the lord lord he said i've labored hard and long in your service putting forth all my strength to do that which you've asked of me yet after all this time i have not even budged the rock even half a millimeter what's wrong why am i failing to this the lord responded compassionately my friend When long ago I asked you to serve me and you accepted, I told you, push against a rock with all your strength. And that you have done. But never once did I mention that I expected you to move it, at least not by yourself. Your task was to push. And now you've come to me, your strength spent, thinking that you failed, ready to quit. But is this really so? Look at yourself, the Lord told them. Your arms are strong and muscled. Your back sinewed and brown. Your hands are callous from constant pressure. And your legs have become massive and hard. Through opposition, you've grown much. And your ability now far surpasses that which you used to have. Yet still, you haven't succeeded in moving the rock. And you come to me now with a heavy heart and your strength spent. I, my friend, will move the rock. Your calling was to be obedient and push and to exercise your faith and trust in my wisdom. And this you have done. So this is for you. This is for me. If we're trying, if we're obedient, if we don't see that rock moving, God hasn't called us to move the rock. He's just called us to be faithful, to be obedient, to be willing to die, to want to dwell and to seek to do. Amen.